Welcome to Brain Talk, a podcast about the latest thinking and research in neurology with a specific focus on epilepsy and other seizure-like disorders. Today's episode features Dr. Jeremy Slater, Chief Medical Officer at Stratus. Dr. Slater gives his take on the Just Diagnose Talk and what information is important to include when you first share with a patient a diagnosis of epilepsy. Let's take a listen. I was asked today to share some of my thoughts about that initial discussion you have with a patient when they've been given a diagnosis of epilepsy. One of the things to keep in mind is that even with well-educated people, the perception of epilepsy, the knowledge about epilepsy for most of the public is exceedingly limited. They have the impression of seizures that they've seen from television and movies and the like. And it's slightly better than uh, possession by demons as far as the, that, that sort of baseline of fear. It's especially scary for the patient because many uh, seizures, the majority, in fact, that are either complex, partial, or secondarily generalized, the bulk of the seizure that's occurring, these bizarre behaviors that other people are witnessing, are occurring under circumstances where the patient has no recall of them at all. They're unconscious during the event. And in some cases, some patients will actually be in denial about the fact that they have epilepsy because you go to talk to them and they have no recall for this crazy stuff that you're talking about except for for witnesses. So the first thing to know is that presenting this diagnosis can be a very frightening thing for the person receiving it. And the second thing is based on advice or a philosophy of one of the brightest physician educators that I know. Uh, who used to ask her medical students, actually still does, what they thought the primary goal of a physician was. And you get all kinds of, there's no obviously no correct answer, you get all kinds of answers. Uh, but her stance is that the primary purpose of a physician is to give hope. And the first time I heard that, I made fun of it and downplayed it. And then I came back six months later and said, yeah, you're right. And uh, to which he responded, I never get tired of hearing that. It's fundamental in discussing illness with a patient that they are viewing you as having their fate in your hands. And while we talk about it being a cooperative effort, and in many ways it is because you can prescribe medications and they will do no good if the patient doesn't take them. You can prescribe changes in lifestyle that will do no good if the patient doesn't follow those recommendations. They still view you as the person with the expertise, hopefully correctly so. And there is in that moment the chance to give them confidence, both in you and in the fact that there is hope that you found the right diagnosis, that you can find the right test to perform, that you can prescribe the right forms of treatment. And uh, part of this, uh, a real critical point is, is being completely honest with them. So if I'm, if I'm explaining it to them for the first time, I'm going to gauge the explanation of what the disease state is based on uh, their level of education and background. 
if it's somebody in the medical field, I'm obviously going to go in a lot more detail after I find out how much they know about epilepsy in the first place. And I don't necessarily make the assumption that just because a person is a nurse or a physician that they're experts in epilepsy because, you know, who knows, they might have uh, spent all their time doing dermatology or something like that. And in other cases, even for physicians, when you're getting a diagnosis, a lot of your intellect goes out the window. And it's a, it's a, it's a frightening thing to hear uh, that you're being, whatever the diagnosis is. So the uh, idea that you explain it in terms that they can understand is, is really important. And probably the average form of explanation that I use is to say that your brain operates um, using a kind of electricity. Uh, and if you could see that electrical activity, like if you could visualize it somehow, uh, it would look utterly chaotic. Like if you walked into one of my teenagers' uh, bedrooms and looked around, it's total chaos. And God forbid, if you went in there and cleaned up everything, they'd have no idea where anything was and they wouldn't be able to find it. In a similar fashion, when your brain's operating normally, it looks chaotic like that. That electrical activity looks chaotic because each part of your brain is doing something slightly different. Now, the entire brain is working in concert to you know, dance the ballet or play the violin or run down the street or uh, cook a lasagna or whatever it is you happen to be doing. But that means that there are a million different parts of the process that are going on at the same time. And if you just see all the electrical controls of this, it looks like a big uh, cloud of chaos. If something changes in your brain, if there is uh, scarring or illness or disease or a change in the structure or the change in the underlying chemistry, so that a whole bunch of the neurons, the brain cells, all start firing at the same time in synchrony, like a bunch of soldiers all marching at once, that's not normal. And that event, that excessive hypersynchronous electrical activity, that is what a seizure actually is. But seizures are distinct from epilepsy. And when I'm explaining this to patients, uh, if I'm telling them about a diagnosis of epilepsy, I will emphasize the fact that anybody can have a seizure under the right circumstances in response to an acute intoxication or a medication, that sort of thing. But once that medicine or that external cause goes away, then the patient doesn't have any more seizures. Epilepsy is a condition effectively defined as the recurrence of these seizures without an external cause. So at this point, your brain has been changed in such a way that you can generate them all by itself. In the process of talking to the patient and taking their history and physical, I'll already know um, a lot about their family history, uh, any abnormalities on the neurologic exam, the results of their imaging studies, EEG and everything else. And this will heavily influence the conversation talking to them about the epilepsy because as an example, for, uh, if they were diagnosed with juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, which is a arguably the most common primary generalized epilepsy syndrome in adults, once I know that they have, you know, they have normally my 
clonus, they've had a generalized convulsion, they have uh, faster than three per second generalized spike wave on their EEG. I know their MRIs are almost certainly going to be normal. I know their intelligence is likely going to be normal. Um, they have a somewhat higher incidence of depression. And their prognosis for control on medicine is going to be excellent. So that in that conversation, I'm reassuring them that if they were planning on becoming doctors or lawyers or business executives or chefs or whatever it is they had were thinking of for their future, that's likely still going to be the case. Uh, we will probably find a medication that controls all of their seizure manifestations. Uh, one drug at a modest dose will control it. But the other thing that I will emphasize at the same time is that the condition, because it is genetic in origin, is not likely to go away they'll probably have to be on medication the majority, if not all of their lives. Um, as opposed to uh, other patients where I know that the uh, seizures are focal in onset, so they're not generalized. I don't know why they're happening. Their imaging may be negative. There may be uh, focal spikes that are present on their EEG that are relatively nonspecific. Then I talk about statistics. You know, you've had, and uh, this is going to change depending on how many of the seizures they've had in the frequency, but you've had this many seizures. We're starting this medicine, and I'll give them the general statistics on response to medicine. And the remarkable thing about this is you would think with all these different epilepsies and all these different medications that the numbers would change radically depending on the particular patient. And it turns out that on average, the numbers stay roughly the same. So that there's close to a 50% chance that the very first medicine that I pick for this patient is going to work. And they won't have another seizure and they'll live uh, you know, happily ever after, effectively seizure-free without side effects, which is our goal when we're treating epilepsy. If that fails, Second drug has maybe a 16% chance, depending on you know, the variability. And once you get past the second medicine, to the third, to the fourth, to the fifth, over time, about two-thirds of the patients will be well-controlled with one or more medications um, without major side effects. So I'll go through the entire process of talking about, well, we're going to try the first medicine and we're, you know, and I'll, the specifics on the medication will vary depending on which medicine I've selected for them. But we'll talk about that particular medicine, how long it's going to take to determine whether or not it's effective, how, how often they'll have to come back for follow-ups. And then you talk about, okay, if that fails, we're going to do this. And if that fails, we're going to do this. And in the unlikely event that all the medicines fail, then there are still all of these alternatives. And the point here is not the specifics of what you may be talking about in terms of surgical alternatives or other medicines, but the fact that the patient knows that even if what you've prescribed for them fails to work, that this is not necessarily unexpected, that it can occur, and that there are additional steps to be taken in order to make them better. And that is crucially important uh, because otherwise you get into the situation where you put them on a medicine 
tell them it's going to work and it fails and they come back and now their, their hope is destroyed. And it's really, really difficult to come back from that in terms of reestablishing trust, uh, maintaining compliance, et cetera, and actually getting to the point where they are seizure free without side effects. One question would be in this process, when do you bring family members and caregivers into the conversation? Um, the patients have, and at baseline, they have an absolute right to privacy, assuming that they're not minors. Um, if they're minors, effectively, uh, for most instances, and I'm sure the, the pediatricians who are listening to this, pediatric neurologists, can find the exceptions. But for the most part, uh, the responsible parent has to be brought in on the conversation. And it's because they're uh, ultimately responsible for the, for the child until she or he turns uh, 18. But once they're adults, then the first thing that you do is make sure that it's okay talking about whatever it is that you're discussing with whoever they've chosen to bring along. Now, 99% of the time, the person that the patient has elected to bring with them into the office is someone that they trust and rely on. And the response is going to be, yes, you know, of course I want my wife to hear this, my husband to hear this, my son to hear this, whoever it was who brought them in. Um, and it's also crucially important, uh, even if you're not going to share the details of the treatment and the diagnosis because the patient simply refuses to have that uh, discussed with the family members. And if they elect to do that, that's their right. But prior to that, you still have to talk to the family members because if they're the witnesses to the seizure and the patient's unconscious, they have to, do, you need the information they have in terms of describing it to you. In the old days, which sadly is probably, you know, when I was in college and medical school, I, this is a hard admission to make, but there really wasn't an internet at the time. I know that just ages me, but then you might be able to recommend, there weren't even a lot of really good books, but there, might, there were some publications that you could refer a patient to for basic information. We kept a lot of this in our office brochures and the like. Compared to that time, this is the golden age because I can point to a variety of uh, online websites that have reliable information uh, about neurology and in general and epilepsy specifically. And the patients and the family members can go there and this is well-vetted information that covers a variety of topics, a lot of the stuff that the patients are going to have questions about. Some of them you're going to answer in the office if they bring them up. Couples, women of childbearing potential may well ask about uh, the possibility of pregnancy, possibility of the, uh, any children inheriting their condition. Um, driving is another huge uh, topic. Um, the, the importance varies depending on where you're located. Obviously, driving in, a, in the state of Texas is crucially important because we have less than ideal public transportations and large stretches of countryside uh, that you basically need a car to access. 
so that when you tell somebody they, they can't drive, it has a massive impact on them socially and socioeconomically. Um, but a lot of this information, whatever they fail to ask you at the time that they're in the office or that you fail to discuss with them right from the outset, that information is available online through the Epilepsy Foundation uh, and through a variety of organizations, uh, Mayo Clinic, et cetera. One of the things that there's been a fair amount of controversy about, what about sudden unexplained death in epilepsy patients or SUDEP? The physician community, it's less so in, in recent years, but used to be completely split on this, where half the neurologist would say, I never bring this up with patients because it frightens them unnecessarily. The chances of it happening are remote. And why tell them about something you can't do anything about anyway? On the flip side of this are the neurologists who argue that as this is part of the condition, the patients have a right to know. And I will, uh, without hesitation, tell you that I fall into the latter group. Not only because the patients have a right to know, which they do, but when you're attempting to get a patient to follow instructions, to take the medication you're prescribing, well, one of the points about the risk of SUDEP is that it is higher in patients with uncontrolled seizures. Medication doesn't do the patient any good if it's sitting in the, in the bottle. So that when you're going to them and, and giving them these instructions, if they realize that however small that risk of SUDEP is, that it's higher if they don't take their pills and are having more uncontrolled seizures, that fear is likely to make, that'll make them more likely to take the medicine in the first place. Now that shouldn't be the only motivation for them, but it's one of many reasons that I'll have the talk about SUDEP. On one hand, you can't, eliminate the possibility, but you can emphasize the fact that uh, better seizure control reduces the likely risk, which means that it is now a collaboration between you and the patient to get that seizure control uh, as optimized as possible to minimize the risk of SUDEP. In all of this, I will go back to the idea that as thorough as you can be in explaining things to the patient, as honest as you can be, because you can imagine a situation, for example, that you didn't explain to a family that SUDEP was a risk and then God forbid they actually suffer that they're never going to trust you again for good reason. But going through this, and I'll give you the one personal example, probably a decade or more ago, uh, I was standing on Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco with my brother and my uh, nephew and my nephew is probably I'm about five eight. He's about six three six four. He's a big guy in his early twenties at that point. And my brother was an emergency room physician who'd obviously seen lots and lots of seizures in his day. I'm the uh, budding academic uh, epilepsy specialist. So between the two of us, we've seen lots and lots of seizures. And as I'm looking over at my nephew. I see his head start to twist off to the left, and lo and behold, he has a generalized tonic-clonic seizure right in front of me. So you have a situation where you have this young man having a seizure. You have 
two physicians in front, both of whom have experience in epilepsy, one of whom is an epileptologist, I suppose, an expert. What do you think my response was? What do you think my brother's response was? My brother, staring at his son having this generalized convulsion, looks at me and goes, what do we do? And I stared back at him and I went, I don't know, call 911. Because at that moment, everything I knew about medicine flew out of my head. And on one hand, um, it's, it's, a, it's a funny story, particularly after we went to the emergency department and one of my colleagues at UCSF, who knows me very well, found out that I was the uncle of this particular patient and started laughing and saying, what, you didn't know what to do? <laughs> but it was a, a breakthrough moment in terms of empathy and realizing exactly how frightening this is for the person going through it. And keeping that in mind uh, allows you to be more patient and to be, uh, I don't know what the word is, gentler in terms of your interactions, respecting the patient, respecting where they come from, uh, realizing that however they respond to this emotionally, uh, they're doing the best that they can that you try to give them as much assistance in that as possible, but you're prepared for the fact that sometimes they may have no emotional reaction at all. Sometimes they can get really angry. Sometimes they can get upset or be upset with you. And that this is going to be a recurring theme as you go through treatment. And if you are calm and patient and understanding and listen to them, it makes an incredible difference in uh, how they receive the diagnosis, uh, assisting in their ability to be resilient in the face of being given a diagnosis that may well last the rest of their life, and it improves the chances that you're actually going to get them to be compliant uh, with the medication and treatment regimen and be able to bring their seizures under control. This podcast was brought to you by Stratus, the leading provider of ambulatory in-home video EEG testing. For more information about Stratus, please visit our website at www.stratusneuro.com.